A lot's happened this week. Uh, this has been a big week. Uh, I mean, seven days have gone by, and wouldn't you know it, all sorts of things have happened. I'll start off with the big breaking big breaking news. Uh, there's been a major development. It's a potential game changer, actually. Uh, Saudi Arabia, two of its major oil production facilities have been hit. It looks like it's drone strikes, and it looks like they've come from Yemen. These were the Houthi, quote, Houthi rebels, and they have uh, managed to penetrate deep into Saudi Arabia uh, in the past uh, with sort of very, I would say, crude missiles and drones uh, in comparison to what other countries have in their arsenal. Uh, Very basic. This is Ansarullah. This is the resistance uh, that's currently based around Sana'a, capital of Yemen, in the northern part of the country. And uh, so they've been resisting the Saudi campaign that's been waged against it, Saudi Arabia, with the U.S. and the U.K. and a few other European countries supplying weapons and uh, resources to Saudi Arabia. They've been going at Yemen really since March 2015. Yemen's been gradually building up their ability to hit back within Saudi Arabia. Well, they've really hit back this week. These are two Saudi Aramco facilities. This is major on so many different levels. So two major facilities, oil fires, the likes of which Saudi Arabia has never seen, the likes of which uh, I would say the region has not seen since the Gulf War. Uh, So since Iraq uh, had invaded Kuwait in 1991, uh, and then also the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, there were also some serious damage done in terms of uh, pipelines and so forth. But this is major. And it's uh, a wound that's been inflicted by what would be called a marginal foe uh, in in the form of the Yemeni resistance. Now, of course, the United States has jumped in and blamed this on Iran. Mike Pompeo is insinuating that uh, this was an Iranian strike against Saudi Arabia. You can imagine the implications of that if you were to believe that sort of fake news, which is being put out by the U.S. Secretary of State, that would immediately lead to potentially a wider war if everybody believed it. Luckily, not many people are buying it, but it seems obligatory now. The United States always has to basically read the same script that uh, anything that happens in and around Yemen is because of Iran and has nothing to do with the fact that uh, Saudi Arabia has been trying to carpet bomb the country of Yemen back into the Stone Ages Uh, really since March 2015, with the absolute explicit help of the United States and its allies, who helped Saudi to prosecute that particular illegal, undeclared war of aggression against its neighbor. And uh, this has big implications. I'll start with the implications just within the oil markets. We're looking at potentially uh, $100 a barrel oil if Saudi is not able to get production back online or to sort of mitigate the worries and fears that the markets might have by Monday. So one would expect an announcement by today or maybe early Monday. If that doesn't come, you might see a spike in oil prices. So according to anybody's report, I'd say the oil market likely to rally 5 to $10 a barrel when it opens up. On Monday, some people are saying it could spike as high as $100 per barrel. That's because Aramco, these facilities are major oil-producing facilities for Saudi, some of the biggest in the world. So, uh, so these attacks have basically put Saudi on their back heels, 
And it's got a lot of people worried. It's got a lot of people worried. So we're looking at a potential a potential situation there that could also trigger maybe somewhat of a global inflationary spiral, at least slight in the short term. Uh, but this isn't something that uh, anybody was counting on uh, only a few weeks or months ago. So we'll see how this shapes up. But it's also interesting because Saudi Aramco, this is the uh, major consortium that runs uh, Saudi's oil and gas production, most of it in the country. Uh, Well, they were talking about floating part of this company, going public, and that would make it one of the, if not the biggest uh, IPO flotation, uh, stock market flotation of any corporation history, probably. So this is how big and how much money uh, is going through this company. This news, this event that has happened could put a dent in any speculation in that department. So that's that remains to be seen. So we'll see. Will Saudi Arabia strike back uh, at Yemen? I doubt they're going to strike Iran. The United States is threatening to mull this over as a possibility, but I don't see that happening. But uh, I could be wrong, of course. But uh, more than anything, this is the death knell for Saudi's absolute uh, boondoggle of a conflict uh, that was launched uh, under the Guys of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, the most ill-advised conflict you can imagine, with the United States, of course, and the UK egging them on from the beginning, and for obvious reasons, the US and the UK, Spain, France, they've all been selling tons of weapons, mainly the United States. Britain's probably second. So they've been making an absolute killing off this war. Saudi's been buying just about everything they could get their hands on, and so that's what's driving More likely what's driving this conflict is also uh, um, an effort to partition Yemen. This is something the U.S. seems to be keen on doing, uh, dividing it to north and south Yemen and maybe using this to sort of not let the Yemenis themselves as a country uh, take and control their own resources, especially in some of the untapped reserves in the south. But it's also to control the Gulf of Aden. And the straits there coming over the Horn of Africa and then into the Red Sea and up towards the Suez Canal. Controlling both sides of this is definitely a priority for for the United States and its uh, allies. So this is also what it's about. It's about dividing Yemen so that the bottom part could be controlled by the U.S. and its allies, whatever that consortium, whatever form that takes. That's definitely a major geopolitical objective going forward. That's also what this war is about. It's about a lot of other things when we can certainly cover those in the future. So it is kind of heating up. John, well, John Bolton's gone, so a lot a lot can happen in a week. What a difference a few days makes. John Bolton, the arch neoconservative hawk, has gotten the boot. And of course, when he got the boot, there's a little argument that broke out on social media. Donald Trump claiming he fired him. Bolton claiming he resigned first. So it was kind of a he said, she said sort of uh, thing going on there. But uh, so John Bolton's gone. There's a bunch of different theories as to why he was gone. Some say his days were numbered anyway. I tend to go with that analysis. Uh, But apparently they had major arguments regarding sanctions on Iran. Trump reportedly wanted to lift sanctions uh, in order to get Tehran back to the negotiation table. Of course, that was a bridge too far for the walrus, John Bolton, Donald Trump's national security advisor. So that Jurassic 
neocon uh, seems to be gone and will probably be replaced by something similar. And so I'm not quite up to speed with regards to his replacement, but uh, there's quite a few names that have been kicked around. We'll see how that goes. But uh, apparently Trump's assured everybody that he's much more much more radical and aggressive than John Bolton. Not to worry, the U.S. is not going to be any less tougher because Bolton's gone because I am just as bad, he said, as Bolton. So that and Lindsey Graham as well. Other people are kind of going back and forth. Marco Rubio as well was tweeting back and forth with uh, Trump about that, saying, don't worry, everybody, we're still really, really bad. We're still to be feared. So that's... uh, that's one there. So, But this is interesting how this is also timed uh, with the United States announcing, has announced a defense pact, a defense treaty uh, with Israel. So as if that's necessary, but apparently they want to ink it on paper. Now, this looks like an electioneering move by Benjamin Netanyahu, who is uh, coming up to an election runoff, and he could use any edge he can get. So one of the edges, of course, is one of his big cards, his big Trump cards uh, in his back pocket is the fact that uh, he's telling the hard line in Israel, including the uh, Jewish nationalists and all the uh, people to the right of the National Front, uh, the extreme uh, Zionist lobbies and persons. He's saying, I've got Trump in my pocket. Trump's going to give us everything we want. We, they've moved the embassies to Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to annex the West Bank, et cetera, et cetera. And this is just just the cherry on top of the whole Sunday here, a defense pact uh, between the United States and Israel. So that means if Israel's attacked, the United States will automatically trigger intervention into the Middle East, all guns blazing. Not that they wouldn't do that anyway, but there are situations where that might not be prudent for the United States. But here they seem to be tied into some sort of pact. Very dangerous. So this is power politics. These are the sort of mutual defense agreements that uh, help to trigger things like World War I in history. So this is power politics writ large. If you question what I'm saying, I suggest you go back and uh, read some history. Uh, this is problematic in the extreme, and to me it seems designed to start a war rather than prevent one. Uh, because everybody is already reticent about, I mean, Israel's been attacking all of its neighbors. Uh, it's attacked in the last couple of weeks, Syria, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, Gaza. So there's nobody that Israel won't attack that's uh, around its borders. And it's done so in an unprovoked fashion. It wasn't provoked. It just did it. And it claims that it's doing it to defend itself. So it's attacking all of its neighbors to defend itself. So that's the, the logic of the Israel security dilemma. So here we are with another potential problem. This is interesting because this also came just a few days after a report surfaced. This was actually on Politico. And so this is a report regarding a potential spying um, operation by Israeli intelligence on the White House itself. Of course, Netanyahu, the PM there in Tel Aviv, has flatly denied uh, that uh, his country was spying on the U.S., but the, the political article, uh, Politico, it, it cited former uh, senior U.S. officials who say Israel is likely to have been behind the surveillance devices that were found near the White House. So this is interesting. So Donald Trump, asked by reporters on Thursday about the report, said he did not believe that Israel was spying on the U.S. So, of course not. They wouldn't do anything like that, even though they've got a long pedigree of actually doing it. Donald Trump might not be familiar with all of those instances over history, and there are many 
There are a number of spy rings that have been broken up in the U.S. Uh, there's a number of FBI investigations. Uh, there's people been caught, imprisoned, all sorts of different examples of this. There's a long history of it. So it's not like it doesn't happen. Uh, so, I mean, I could get into some detail about that subject. It's certainly interesting. There's a number of uh, people who you can go read. Most interesting is probably Daniel Halper's book, which came out uh, in, I think it was 2014. It was called Clinton Incorporated, Clinton Inc., The uh, Rebuilding of an Audacious uh, Political Machine. In this book, he outlined reports which strongly suggested that so for some somehow Israel got its hands on text messages between Bill Clinton, then president in 1998, and Monica Lewinsky, and then used that to blackmail Bill Clinton into doing various things, uh, including trying to secure the release of an Israeli spy, a mole who was working uh, in the U.S. defense establishment. His name was Jonathan Pollard. And he was in prison in the United States. Israel's desperate to to get him out. But they also managed to probably, it probably did work because Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich uh, right before he left office. One of the great things that Bill Clinton did, among many great things that he did on his way out of office, including repealing the Glass-Steagall Act, which basically opened the floodgate to massive speculation and which led to the housing bubble uh, and the sort of the economic disasters that wiped out uh, a lot of people's uh, savings and uh Got a lot of people's homes repossessed. Those are all things that Bill Clinton was responsible for when he basically repealed the Great Depression safety valve called the Glass-Steagall Act. So you can thank Bill Clinton for that. But yeah, I managed to get Mark Rich pardoned. Uh, Mark Rich is, a lot of people regard him as Israeli spy as well. That's probably what Netanyahu was also after. Pollard was also in there in, in that mix as well. And one wonders, uh, you know, how did they get Monica Lewinsky's text messages, uh, sexting, as, as it was, uh, between Bill Clinton and Lewinsky. Uh, so imagine that, blackmailing a U.S. president. And they're our greatest ally and friend, Israel. So there it is. <laughs> it just gets better and better and better. Exodus, movement of the people. I'ma speak the message, but I need the royalties like Rigo. You better learn to hear no, or see no evil. Cause higher power methods is illegal. In fact, elite though. I'm like a black panther shouting power to the people. But this ain't limited to colored jurisdiction. I'm speaking to the world if it takes the time to listen. I'm here to reinstate the fate of spoken word tradition. I'm here to put some truth back in the statement it was written.